tell me there's a policy wonk from the Bank of England giving a chat next door. Are you sure you're all in the right room? <laughs> Well, good evening, everyone. Um, I'm Rob Baldwin from the LSE Law Department and uh, LSE Cricket Team. <laughs> so I don't feel much of a cricketer sitting here somehow. <coughs> we have uh, with us a gentleman today who needs no introduction. He's played 115 times for England, captain them 54 times, scored 185 not out to save us from the wrath of the South Africans. Has Changed careers, become an award-winning journalist, chief cricket correspondent of the Times. That is, of course, uh, Michael Atherton. Thanks very much for coming. Because we all think uh, Mike is wonderful, but as an antidote, uh, as Alan Partridge would say, just to cut the chase, to make the record straight, did Steve Kirby really <laughs> say to you, when he was a fresh-faced young bowler and you'd scored 16 test centuries, did he say to you, I've seen better batters in my fridge? He certainly did. <laughs> and the way I was playing, he was quite right too. <laughs> I think that was my last first-class game for Lancashire against Yorkshire. I think I got two single-figure scores. Out to Kirby twice. <laughs> now, uh, I should say to you, the format tonight is that um, there will be some uh, questions for discussion between uh, Mike and myself for a time, and then we'll, we'll throw the questioning open to the, to the audience, so please have your questions ready uh, for that stage of events. Mike will then do a book uh, signing at the entrance out there uh, after we've finished. And uh, he has his new book here, Glorious Summers and Discontents, um, which uh, is a great read, covers all the controversial issues of the, the last decade or so, and uh, much of Mike's uh, best and most interesting journalism. So I would recommend that to you. It's very incisive, as you'd expect. It also contains some, some wonderful descriptive passages. Um, there's a particular one, some of people in this room might like more than others, it has to read this to you, it's on page 25. But it's a description of Mike Brearley. He said, Kevin Peterson was sitting next to Mike Brearley. Brearley looked every inch the university professor. White hair. <laughs> Scruffy blue sweater. Cords and hush puppets. I'd change quickly. Kevin Peterson. <laughs> Kevin Peterson, if I remember, was dressed in his England tracksuit with his Oakley sunglasses and a big pair of earphones on. It was just after, it was very interesting actually, it was just after a game test match in Mahali, and it was, I think, Kevin Peterson's first, second or third game as England captain. Um, and he was, he, England had failed to uh, defend, I think, 380 or something in, in Chennai, it was. And he went to sat, sit next to Brearley to get, pick up a few tips. And it was a really curious sight to the two of them. You can't think of two more different characters than Kevin Peterson and, and Mike Greeley. But Peterson's quite a, an interesting character in that, well, if I took a straw poll here, how many people would warm to Kevin Peterson, uh, not knowing him at all? How many people in this room would warm to him? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the usual uh, reaction I get. But I tell you, I've always found him extremely polite, uh, very charming chap. Um, never seen him, you know, out 
drunk the night before a test match, trains harder than uh, everybody else, uh, and he's obviously, as we saw this week, uh, a wonderful player. So um, I've got a lot of time for him. I actually thought he made a very decent fist of his short stint as England captain. Which prompts me to embarrass you slightly because I'm asking the question I was going to ask later on, which is how can you explain why the British public love the Flintoffs and the Athertons? And as you say in your book, I think you don't say that bit. <laughs> <laughs> they will never love Kevin Peterson. I mean, you and Mr. Brunfi, and people still loved him. Well, it is. Um, <laughs> It is down to uh, where he's from, I think. I, I, I think people think of him as a South African who has um, you know, decided to kind of make his living here, for right or wrong. I mean, I'm perfectly relaxed about that. I, I wouldn't be relaxed if we had you know, 11 South African-produced cricketers, if you like, in the England team, because at some stage, an England team has to represent something of the English game. Um, but I think it's simply that on occasions. I also think the English public likes somebody who demonstrably gives their all every time they play. And I don't, I'm not saying Kevin Peterson doesn't at all, because as I've said to you, he trains harder than anybody I've seen, and is a wonderful uh, example of, of a professional and how professional cricketers should be. But somebody like Paul Collingwood, for instance, who is that typical English gritty, um, limited. <laughs> and I, you know, I put myself in that category, but uh, very much so. But pe English people take to that, I think, for some reason. Freddie was slightly different. Freddie was a, um, a, a, they saw him very much as the man of the people and the gesture with Brett Lee at, at the end of that um, wonderful test match at Edgebaston. Um, and obviously the way he played in that seminar series as well. So I think his was slightly different, but essentially they take to people who, who are kind of all right, but give their best. So do you, do you, do you see anyone in the current England Test 11 who, is, who has the capacity to generate that sort of response? Well, I think, I, I think they'll all become, if they're not already hugely popular, become hugely popular because they're going to be a very difficult team to beat over the next few years. Um, I know the rankings don't say that they're number one, but I haven't seen a better um, team in test cricket than England over the last few years. It's that time to tell what will happen in this series, but I suspect they might win it by two clear games and then go top of the rankings. And so that will be the first time, if it happens, since the mid-1950s, I think, that England could absolutely say they're the best team in the world. And that's come on the back of um, a lot of hard work that Strauss and Flower uh, put in between them and then the team as well. It is incredibly hard working. Uh, England team. So I think um, that they will become loved uh, because they're going to be a very, very good team as well. And they also play the game uh, in the right way. There was a time, I think, when Australia were very obviously the best team, but they weren't necessarily a loved team in Australia because of some of the things uh, that went on. But I think England play the game uh, in the right way. I think they're going to be very hard to beat over the next few years. And it is always the case why this is I don't know but when you finish playing people tend to like you a little bit more I mean, <laughs> the, the number of people come up to me when England have had a bad day saying you know we need you out there I'll get your pads on <laughs> forgetting you know the 19 times that I got out for 
next to nothing to Glenn McGrath and <laughs> 18 times to Kurt Lee Ambrose. For some reason, they seem to remember the best of you, which is quite a nice thing. Yeah. Uh, Graham Swan, just talking about the <coughs> batting line, now, Graham Swan, he was uh, recently said, you know, he goes to sleep while you know, Strauss and Cook and Trot are batting. And then he'll kind of you know, trot out and, and have a look at, um, at KP. He said that very tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> well, I mean, you know what he's trying to say, but all the bowlers love the fact that Strauss, Cook and Trot are in the top three, because there's nothing worse than if you're a bowler and you've been toiling away for 50 or 60 hours in 40 degree heat, and to see some fancy Dan opener come out and just nick the first ball, and suddenly you've got to put your pads on as a bowler, so they love the fact that England's top three is absolutely solid uh, as a rock, so it's very much so you don't think that uh, this is a kind of part of the corruption of 2020, that the kind of the batting values that kind of you espoused in a way and that Strauss and Cook and Trot demonstrate, you know, the building and innings sort of thing, you don't think there's a, a devaluation of that crept in, even tongue-in-cheek? I, I don't think there's been a devaluation, but the game has definitely changed. There are fewer grinders out there now, and thank heavens for that, you might say. Um, I suspect there are not many people around who could play a marathon 10-hour innings. Um, India have got one in Randall Dravid. He, uh, he's probably the best in the world at that at the moment. Um, but generally the game has got quicker, uh, batsmen are more dominant, it's a, more, it's a physically uh, aggressive game. Now, you, know, you see the batsmen in the gym pumping enormous weights and using bats that are that wide. And so that it definitely changed. Um, but I don't necessarily think that the, 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 the likes of Jonathan Trott or Alistair Cook have been devalued. I think they're still held in, in high regard in, in that England team. There's, there's room for all types in that. Yeah. Just on a, on a techie issue, the Lords thing, you know, Strauss dropped a couple of catches and Tendulkar's never done well there. Your Trent Bridge average was double your Lords average. Um, what is it about Lords? Well, Tendulkar in particular, he was uh, chatting to Nick Knight, one of our, my co-commentators of Sky before the final day or the fourth day. And he was saying that he just found it difficult to pick the ball up at Lords. We've obviously got the red background of the pavilion. Uh, and then at the nursery end, in the gap between the Compton and Edrich stands, where the media centre is, and then there's trees in the background. And I don't know whether Ed, any of you ever remember when Chris Reed ducked into a slow ball from... Chris Cairns and Graham Thorpe did the same to Courtney Walsh, so it can be quite difficult to pick up the ball. And Tendulkar openly said that he doesn't find it easy um, to pick up the ball from the cricket bowls at the Lords. In terms of the catches, for some bizarre reason at Lords, the ball dips and moves. Why that is, um, there'll be a professor in this building who could tell us. Probably, probably help um, now, uh, playing, let's, let's talk a bit about playing. So who were your heroes when you were growing up? Um, David Gower was one. Um, I can absolutely remember as a, um, as a as nine years old, uh, playing in the back garden, inevitably, um, being called in by my dad um, to watch David Gower's first ball against Pakistan 1977 or 78, I can't remember, one of those two. Um, and I remember my dad calling me in and saying, come watch this left-hander, watch how still he keeps his head. And he then 
popped his first ball away before. And when you see something like that as a kid, you are hooked then and always followed his career after that, which was, any of you who remember watching David Gower back would know that that's uh, not an easy thing to do because he could easily come in and switch the first ball straight to slip or gully. So he was a difficult uh, player to follow. Um, and then, oddly, you know, a few years later, ten years later, he was the England captain giving me my first England cap. So that was that was quite a nice moment. Um, Clive Lloyd of Lancashire, love watching him bat, um, and love that West Indies team generally. Actually, who's seen Fire in Babylon? Did Has anybody seen? Great documentary, slightly um, flawed, politically flawed, but um, great documentary on the West Indies team. Um, just fabulous to watch. So, what would your father think of Kevin Peterson doing the flamingo walk <coughs> outside of Stone, hitting the ball walking? Um, well, yeah, how still can his head be? Well, <laughs> if you look at the, the, the technique of Kevin Peterson, the basics, he does the basics very well. He moves a lot before the ball is bowled, but as the ball is delivered, he is absolutely still. Um, and when you consider that he's six foot four, is he six foot five? There are not many um, blokes of that height who are so well balanced at the crease. He's incredibly well balanced at the crease. Um, just think of him playing Shane Warne and he waltzes down the pitch and then the ball drifts and he's able to change direction almost in mid-dance and that, that, that's only somebody who's incredibly well balanced can do that. So the actual fundamentals of his game are very sound and then he's got you know what all many great players have got. He's got the ability to dominate good bowls. Um, I think he's the best uh, English <coughs> player that I've seen, him or Gooch. In the time that I've been playing, I would say him and Gooch are the two best English players that I've seen. And do you think there's something special about this, this recent 200 where he had to, he had to battle through the hard times quite a mature innings. It, I wouldn't say it was his best innings because I didn't think that the Indian bowling, particularly when Zahir Khan um, had gone from the attack, I didn't think the Indian bowling was that challenging. But the conditions were challenging and um, he constructed his innings probably better than any other innings I've seen him play um, in the way that you said he had to grind a bit on the first day and then he didn't give it away, he went on and, and kept going. Um, and it may just spark a a second coming for him. Not that he's been really struggling, but for the last 18 months he hasn't played like uh, Kevin Peterson, you know, can play. And this might just spark a, a really golden couple of years for him. And we have talked about the Indians. I mean, do, do you see the Indians as being kind of between generations a bit now? Well, it, it's the oldest middle order since 1974-5, I think, when England got locked in Australia. Um, so they're not a young team. Uh, it's stark contrast watching India and England train. Uh, England very fit, very focused, very sharp. India <laughs> looked a little complacent in training. They've come from a, a tour of the Caribbean. I think it's inadequate to play one three-day game as a preparation. It's a bit like when England went to Australia a few years ago and played just a couple of warm-up games and got trounced. I think if you're going to come and play a really good team like England, you've got to treat it seriously. You've got to take. Um, you've got to play a couple of four-day games at least. It's very difficult in this day and age with the itinerary as is 
but I think they kind of got a bit of a wake-up call at Lords, um, having been in the Caribbean playing a pretty ordinary West Indies side, suddenly come up against a top-class outfit. Um, and they haven't played, you know, they've played a lot of one-day cricket, a lot of IPL cricket, but they've played a top-class outfit, and I think they got found out a little bit, and they'll miss that here can badly. Um, and it, it's certainly dead, but I would think it'd be difficult for them to come back. So can we go back to um, to Atherton and the kind of the defining innings, the the, the one eighty five in, in Johannesburg? And I was I was very surprised to read that you said that was the only time that you really felt in the zone. Because you know, University Press, we get in the zone every time. So. Is that really the case? That that was the only time you really felt fully locked in? Yeah, well, what is the zone? I mean, I don't know. It's a bit kind of um, sports speak, isn't it? The zone. I don't know. I, I mean, all I would say is on that final afternoon uh, in Johannesburg, this was in 1995, I just knew they weren't going to get me out. But things seemed to happen in slow motion. Even Donald, who's bowling quick, quick, you know, 90 miles an hour and plus. Ball was coming down in slow motion. Uh, movement seemed very languid. Um, I just knew they weren't going to get me out, and that was a quite an odd feeling. I mean, it didn't happen like that at the start, but by six or seven hours into that innings, <laughs> with another three to go, um, I just knew they weren't going to get me out, and um, that's sadly the only time I really felt like that. Felt unbeatable, and no doubt. Kevin Petersons and Brian Lara's and Sachin Tendulkar's feel like that on a daily basis. It must be a, it must be a wonderful thing, but I can't um, explain how you get into it. Um, I just knew that for that one little golden period, they weren't going to get out. We, we get it quite a lot in the LSU staff team. When you, you spend a lot of time watching other batsmen at close quarters, have you actually learned much by watching them? Or do you think, well, if that's Lara, that's the way he does it, or that's Gooch, that's his thing? So you actually well, I was very fortunate to start with Graham Gooch. I, um, I think my first game was 1989. And he had just been made England captain round about then, um, just two or three games into my career. And then for the next four years or five years, he averaged about 70 for England. So we opened together and had the best seat in the house, 22 yards away, watching this quite old player by you now. Gooch would have been 37 or something, thereabouts then. But uh, an unbelievable run of form, and he knew exactly what he was doing. And it was a wonderful um, learning curve for me to watch him. He played an innings, um, I don't know whether any, anybody will remember him, at Headingley in 1989 uh, against the West Indies. 1991 against the West Indies, 154 not out. Which I think wisdom, they have to have these statos who work for Wisdom, and they uh, computed that to be the second or third greatest innings ever played, given the pitch, which was four, the bowling, which was Walsh, Ambrose, Patterson, Marshall. He got scored 154 not out, out of counting much more than 240. And it was an absolutely brilliant innings, and to watch him go about uh, his business was a great from 22 yards away, it was a fantastic learning curve. But, um, I mean, you watch these, some of these great players. Lara was a, an incredible player, um, doing things. He did things that you knew or I knew I could not do. It never quite felt that with Tendulkar, funnily enough. Tendulkar 
He's obviously a great, great player, probably the greatest ever Bradman that's ever played the game. But his greatness comes from almost accumulated excellence. You know, the 40,000 runs, the 100 hundreds. Um, and the way that he um, manages to cope. The other morning at Lords, on the final day, which was a fantastic day, the MCC did a brilliant thing. They charged 20 quid, free if you're under 16. People flocked in, it was a great day. Um, and Tendulkar went for a net in the morning, and I can't tell you the mayhem around the media centre. But he had four or five security guards, and it was like a scrum to get through. It was like, I don't know, watching the Beatles in, in America in the 1960s or something. And he has this on a daily basis in India. Every single time this boy goes out to net, or goes out to bat, he has to cope with this incredible pressure. So his genius comes from his ability to cope with that. I mean, the day before the game, I watched him and Dravid back together. Dravid scored 12,000 test runs of 53. Not a soul watching Ronald Dravid. <laughs> Hundreds of people watch this action test runs. So he's got to cope with this. And the way that he copes with it is an astonishing thing. So that's a slightly different type of genius to Lara, who just did things with the bat that I've not seen other people be able to do. Yeah. I mean, you say in your book that uh, kind of temperament is the thing. Um, and you also talk about getting yourself into the right kind of level of temperament when you're going to bat. So because you're a laid-back kind of guy, your issue was kind of you know, getting up to the right level, whereas you know, Mark Rambocatch would have to calm down. So did you actually kind of do John McEnroe, you know, <laughs> pick fights with bowlers to, to actually get yourself up? Um, I think it's Kenny Barrington who said, always keep on the right side of the quick bowlers, he's probably a good judge. No, but I, I know what you're saying, if your temperament is quite calm and quite relaxed, as mine is, you need to have, this is probably applies to any walk of life, if you're sitting at an exam or whatever, you need to have a level of nerves and anticipation to perform at your best, you don't want those nerves strangling you and taking over, but you need to have a certain just freeze on there. Um, so I needed to kind of get myself up, and obviously if you're playing in a test match with 100,000 people or 20,000 people, that's easy to do, you get into a natural state of tension. Uh, my problem was then going back and playing county cricket in front of often 10 men and a dog, where it would be very difficult to do that, you'd have to find ways to do that. But you're right, some people like Mark Rampakash and that's saying, who were quite tense, quite uptight, you know, had to find ways of, of bringing the heart rate, rate, heartbeat down, which is uh, not an easy thing to do. So in your, in your average testing, I take it, you're nervous when you walk out on that morning, but how long does it, how many balls in do you sort of shed that and then start? <coughs> Very quickly, I'd say. Um, but I, I used to get nervous the, the day before a, a test match, opening test match of a series, you wouldn't sleep, sleep fitfully. Um, you know, it would be a tense time. And it got worse, actually, I think, the more you play. People say that it's easier the more games you have on your belt. But I, I found it harder, actually, because the levels of your own expectations rise. When you're 19, A, you don't know fear. B, but you're not sure whether you can do it at that level. Once you know you can do it, that your own expectations rise, so it becomes more difficult. What was the question? Waffling <laughs> on. I've completely forgotten the question. No, I think you, you, how soon is it? That oh, yeah, you quickly, quickly. I mean, you get out of the crease, you're, you're nervous, but once once that ball starts to come down, particularly for a quick bowler, you must focus on that ball because if it's coming at 95 miles an hour, and if you don't, you're a goner. Yeah. And 
and very quickly that that when you do focus in, um, then you're you're almost trained to those goals. The memory of Mike Gatting's nose concentrates the mind. Well, uh, he wasn't wearing a uh, grill, which obviously most players do these days. And I, I think the helmet is the biggest change in the game, the modern game. I would argue it's the biggest change in the game since overarm bowling came in because it do, and there's not as many quick bowlers around now, so there's not quite that level of physical fear and physical apprehension. I mean, I don't know whether anybody can remember Mike Gatting getting his nose obliterated in, in Barbados, but it's horrific. Um, thing and players before helmets 1975 1976 the, the England team that went out to face Thompson and Lily you know are standing there knowing that they can get seriously hurt possibly even killed at the crease now that's a completely different thing to wearing a, a helmet and a grill and an arm guard and a chest guard and thinking well I might just get you know a bit of a knock here that's a crucial difference so I always find it very difficult when people say how can you compare a batsman from current era to a pre-helmeted era because the current players you're not asking that fundamental question of the deepest level of courage in certain cricketing terms is not asked of the modern player. The other thing you mentioned uh, a number of times is, is having a sense of humour as a player. I mean, do you, the ability not to take yourself too seriously. I mean, do you think that is part of what you have to have? I think it's easy to lose sight of, and I definitely lost sight of it for a little bit, particularly captaining the team. Um, you know, I, I found it a, at times stressful thing, um, and I did it for probably a little bit too long, four or five years, it was probably about six months a year too long, some would say five years too long. <laughs> I found it quite a stressful thing, um, and of course that, it's a, it's a curious thing for professional sport, because you know deep down that what you are doing is a bit, it, it's not that important. In the grand scheme of things, it's not particularly important. We all know that. Just knocking a ball into a hole or throwing a ball and catching it, whatever, it's not that important. But equally, in order to do it as well as you possibly can, you have to kind of kid yourself that what you're doing is important. And that daily um, suspension of disbelief, or whatever you want to call it, it's quite an interesting little dynamic. You have to kid yourself that it matters. Because I certainly have to because then you play the best when you think it matters. But deep down, you know, it doesn't really matter at all. <laughs> and when you suffer from, obviously everybody gets dips in form. Um, when you suffer from a, uh, one of these dips, did that tend to be a kind of confidence problem or a technical issue? Were the fixes technical ones? Or? I was a terrible um, fiddler, tinkerer with technique. Terrible. Really, it's one of the things if I look back on it and said, how would you do it all different again? That would be the main thing. I would have um, far more trust in my ability and faith in my ability <coughs> than I had, rather than tinkering around. When you're in a bad trot, you start to worry about all kinds of things, about the position of your head, the position of your hands, the position of your feet, and you then forget to watch the ball, do the most fundamental thing. Um, in fact, going back to Tendulkar, the one thing about his game that stands out for me is how little it changed over the years, or has changed over the years. I played in the, in the game where he scored his first 100, which was at Old Trafford in 1990, and he looks exactly the same player now as he did 21 years ago. The actual technique, watching him stand there, the crease sideways on, 
bat a little bit off the ground, a little bit of a just a movement as the bowler comes in, a bit of a forward press. That's exactly what he did 21 years ago. Of course, it's easy to retain faith in your game if you get in you know, 100 after 100 after 100. But I, I think that's a great lesson, and it's a good lesson for coaches not to interfere too much. Have faith in your um, talent and your, and your fundamental method. I think. Then, see, you're doing this job. I mean, could you enjoy it at the time? Could you ever sort of face Kirtley Ambrose and think, this is fun? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, absolutely. Yeah. The periods, the reasonably infamous little duel with Alan Donald in, at Trent Bridge in 1998, absolutely felt that was the best fun, great fun. It's what, what you absolutely play for. Playing against the best fast bowler of the day in a critical test match, that little hour you knew was going to determine the course of the game, ultimately the series. That's Absolutely, why you play, yeah. And I felt that very clearly then. Um, even if you know, slightly concerned that you might get hurt. But, yeah, <laughs> but uh, there's a famous story about you know. Then you had the beer after the game. I mean, see, so you, you and clearly there was sledging going on. Or at least he was sledging you in Africa. No, but you're right. Uh, we we would still at that stage have a. Um, have a drink after the game. I don't think it happens now, um, but it did then. Um, and I don't know whether any of you remember, but in the middle of that spell, uh, I gloved one to the keeper, didn't walk, um, and he was obviously a bit naffed off. <laughs> but at the end of it, he asked me whether I'd give him the glove and sign it, which I did, and it had a lovely red mark. <laughs> Everyone thought that was wonderful, and yet there is this kind of 
view growing that, well, what the public want is a battle. They want sledging, they want aggression, etc., etc. Uh, and that's the way the modern game is going. So the sportsmanship kind of has no place. You know, winning is everything. And yet suddenly, when Freddie taps him on the shoulder and there's that photograph, everyone says, this is great. You don't know what Fred said to him. <laughs> 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 one you must have asked. I don't think he did that. <laughs> um, well, it's a... It's a fine line, isn't it? I, I do think people want a red-blooded contest out there. Yeah. And I, I don't think they want to see um, 11 robots, um, 11 angels necessarily. Um, but there's a line beyond which you don't want to cross. We touched on the Australian team. There was an incident uh, when India travelled there a few years ago between Harbhajan Singh and uh, Andrew Simons, I think, and Ricky Ponting. And I think the Australian public were turned off by that. Well, they were, because all the polls that were done uh, were saying it's not a particularly popular Australian team. So there is a, there's a balance to be had, I think, between um, that kind of red-blooded contest that everybody wants to see, but still played in the right spirit. I think everybody would accept uh, that, well, sledging is overplayed anyway. There's not really that much of it goes on, but if, if you think of sledging as the odd little word from bowler to batsman, if that's done as a byproduct of the contest between bat and ball, then that's fine. I think everybody would accept that to be fine. But if sledging is kind of premeditated, a premeditated effort to put a man off his game, I think people would argue that that's not fine. So there's a, a, a balance. Is that nudity in films? It's part of the plot. <laughs> <laughs> Were you ever conscious of sledging having worked against you, of having succumbed to it? Um, no, I, they, the Australians in particular, around about 1989, were quite a verbal side. Um, and that was the reason um, that the way match referees came in, um, because they'd slightly gone over the top, and they would test out a young player, um, almost as a right of passage. First, come into the England team. Can you cope with it? If you show you can cope with it, um, they'll leave you alone. If they feel that it gets under your skin, uh, then they'll keep on doing it. So you've got to kind of prove yourself, if you like, to them that it's not going to affect you. Um, Fuse was the clap. I mean, very funny. In 1989, he bounced me and slept me all day long. Next time I played against him in 1993, the very first ball I nicked down to third man. He said, "You're crap four years ago, and you've not got any better since." He's <laughs> opening down the line to me four years into me. Yeah, so, um, did, did you have a consistent strategy for dealing? Did you ignore it completely, or did you uh, actually? For the most play? part, yeah. Ultimately, the bowler can only win. Yeah. He, you know, even if you get a hundred, he's going to get you. One of them will get you out in the end, yeah. and you've got to toddle off back to the so with a load of abuse ringing in your ears. So <laughs> by and large, it's best to, best to ignore it. Uh, well, so as you said in your book, the one thing you have in your favour is the stare. Yes, if you stare at the blow, that he's got to turn back and go get back to his mark. Um, I don't know whether it's probably better to disengage altogether. Again, Tendulka, you hold him up as a, a wonderful example of, of, the, of the great player. He doesn't get involved at all. They start, he just turns away. They say something to him, he just turns away. Um, 
seem to engage, and that's probably the best way to go about it. It's quite fun sometimes to give a bit back as well. So, so did you indulge in such? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about oh, certain bowlers didn't either. Curtly Ambrose, he didn't say that. The West Indies team never said anything. Ambrose, Walsh, um, Marshall, these guys, well, they were so good for a start, um, let the ball do the talking. Um, that particular West Indies team that I started playing against had an incredible aura, actually. Um, and it's hard to describe it. Richards was the captain of the Halvid Richards. And the first time I played against them was at Heading there. I was watching this team warm up. They were absolutely magnificent. Incredible warm up. And they all high-fived and hugged each other at the end. And they obviously had an, an incredible spirit amongst them. Um, and Richards had this swagger. Um, and at that game, uh, in particular, Graham Gooch was captain. And they tossed up. Um, and Richards won the toss. And he said to Gooch, I'll, I'll let you know in 10 minutes what, what you're going to do, which you could do in those days. So Gucci threw back to the dressing room and said, he's going to let us know in 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of all sat there. <laughs> the dressing rooms were next door. And bang on 10-2, Richards knocked on the door, opened the door, and just said, you can have a bat. And we all went, oh no. <laughs> just had this incredible confidence and aura about him. It was a magnificent team to watch. And I think it's the saddest story in sport, that the decline of the West Indies team is the saddest story in sport. Well, I mean, do you think cricket needs a decent West Indian side? It needs a decent West Indian side, it needs a decent Pakistan side. Listen, it's a game of ten countries fundamentally. I know cricket's played in Ireland now quite successfully in Holland, but there are ten test match countries of which two are not very good, Bangladesh and Zimbabwe. Um, so it's quite a small uh, cricketing world, and if, if the West Indies are no good, and if Pakistan can't play at home, um, then you're reducing it ever further. And you, you're then saying, well, there's only three or four good teams to play against. So it's absolutely vital that teams like Pakistan and the West Indies uh, remain strong. I, I'm pessimistic about West Indies cricket, I have to say. I hope I'm wrong. Uh, can I move on to captaincy now? Because there's, you know, things puzzle me about um, the, the Phil Tufnell issue. In your book, you talk about Tufnell being this just complete bag of nerves and <coughs> always coming up and saying, am I doing it right? You know, I mean, how can you be a decent test bowler and have that psyche? Well, he was and he did. So, um, was this due to your man management? No, not at all. God, he could certainly not say that, no. <laughs> uh, uh, he... He, he was neurotic in a sense. He wanted to be told all the time that he was looking good, that the ball was coming out well. And you knew that, and therefore most of the time he said, yeah, it's coming out well, it's, it's coming out great. He also had a number at that stage, a number of off-field issues. Um, you know, he was going through various problems. And actually then, for him, getting the ball in his hand and getting out to the middle um, was a, a great release in a way. It was the one place where he was almost in control of events. Um, and I think in some ways cricket was good for him in that, in that sense. Um, that off the field was difficult. On the field he was nervous and a bit neurotic, but actually he was in control of, of you know, how the ball came out. Um, and he's a, actually a, a smart lad. I don't know whether 
people listen to him on TMS, and I tend not to because I'm on the telly, but um, when I do hear him, he's got a sharp cricket brain. He plays up to the, to the fool a bit, but he's quite sharp, sharp cricket brain. So did you think, that your, during your time when you were captain, that you had the, kind of, you know, the average number of, of egotists and difficult people and paranoid people, or did you sort of look at them and think, what have I done to get this? <laughs> <laughs> that was the old Archie McLaren line, wasn't it, about selectors, look what they've sent me today. Um, no, I, the normal um, mixture really of uh, confident guys, egotists, uh, those lacking in confidence. I mean, that is the beauty of captaining a cricket team. You get all sorts in there. You've got to work out uh, what people are like, how you can help them best. I mean, you don't always get it right. You don't often get it right. Uh, but it is a wonderful challenge. Um, you know, completely different. Darren Goff, for example, you know, bullish, boisterous Yorkshireman, absolutely confident in his own ability and fun-loving and gregarious. His only partner, Andy Caddy, had a, a, a front of confidence, but deep down, not particularly so. Um, you know, you've got to work these, got to work these things out. I, I, I often think, looking back then and looking now, that I would have loved to have played in an England team where. Um, they have the ability to practice and train together and improve together now. They basically don't play much county cricket the players now, so they're in they travel around in this bubble being the England team. And I think in any walk of life, if you're surrounding yourself by people of high calibre, high ability, your own standards are bound to improve. Um, so it's wonderful to watch the England team now because in the old days, you know, we'd kind of play a test match, then we'd all disappear to our counties for Ten days, two weeks, and then convene again. Um, and it was the county work which was the main focus of your day-to-day -day cricketing existence. Whereas now, the England team is very much focused as an England team. And it's, um, in some ways, I regret not having that, but also, you know, a great admiration for what they've got. And that came on the back of one simple thing: the introduction of central contracts, which happened just as I finished, was the biggest step forward for English cricket. Um, You've been a great reader, so I imagine you read when you became captain. You'd read all the books on the art of captaincy, etc., etc. So, did you go into that job with a model of the sort of captain you wanted to be, a, a hierarchical leader? Um, leader from the I, I looked at what Alan Border had done with Australia and thought, well, there's a guy um, who has done what I would have liked to have done with England, which is take a middling, low-ranked team and improve them, um, almost kind of dragging them along with him in a way. Um, so I, whilst I didn't know Alan Border, I played against him a little bit, I just kind of thought, well, there's a, a role model to have, um, in the sense that that's what I would have liked to have done. Um, not that I did it, but uh, it's always good to have a, a, have a role model there. Um, so I would say, yeah. And what, what was that stuff? Was it collegiate? I mean, did you discuss tactics with the, the yeah, troops? Yeah, absolutely, but you've got to know that at the end of the day, the W's and the L's, the wins and the losses are against your name. So you have to make the decisions. Um, and you want to carry the team with you. So there are times when you want to ask them about a declaration or about what you might think we should do when we bat our ball. But ultimately, you are carrying the 
So you've got to be happy with that decision. There's no point thinking, well, they all want to do this, and if it goes wrong, I can kind of, you know, pass off responsibility because it was a team decision. It doesn't work like that. You're always responsible as captain. So ultimately, you have to do it your way. It's not a silly thing to say. You've got to do that. Uh, right. I have another question and hold the floor now. So uh, I think this time has come to uh, to throw it more open. So, gentlemen, uh, the moustache, you had your hand. Yes. What's your attitude to the uh, sort of whinging attitude of the Eagles? They don't want to uh, adhere to Hawkeye like where every other test nation other captains to get the right result. Who is the technology? Well, it seems a very curious uh, mix that we have at the moment where you can call for technology if somebody's edged the ball, but you can't call for an LBW. So you could have an odd situation where we were working this out the other day. There is an anomaly where a batsman feels he's uh, he's been given out, but he thinks he's hit it. Hawkeye shows that he didn't give it, that he didn't hit it, but that he was out LBW, and the umpire can't, can't give him out LBW. So there's all kinds of anomalies because the people at home watching the television have got all the tools that we've got as commentators. Uh, so I think it's only a matter of time before um, the Indian board toes the line from, I've heard this and I can't verify it, but I've heard that um, Sachin Tendulkar had met the Hawkeye man, who's called Paul Hawkins, um, was, ha was happy with what he'd seen and was ready to kind of recommend to his bosses that they should go with it. I can't verify that story, but that's been in the papers. Um, but the, the DRS has worked pretty well and I think it's only a matter of time before. Yeah, I'm not, I, I wasn't sure whether it would. I, I mean, initially, when it came in, it wasn't shown on the big screen. Now, I thought that was ridiculous because if you're paying good money, 50, 60, 70 quid to get a ticket, and the person sat at home on the sofa watching television sees more than you do, that seems to be a travesty. So I'm glad they show it on the big screen now. Um, and yeah, I, I still think the, the, the moment of a wicket is the greatest moment in a day. And I think sometimes that the DRS, the use of DRS, rather takes away that spontaneity. You know, so you see a bowler celebrate and then suddenly they've got to stop the celebrations and wait. Now a lot of people tell me that it adds to the uh, excitement and um, so I'd, I'd go with that. But it's worked pretty well as a tool and I think you know, it won't be long before India fall, fall in line. Gentlemen here in the blue shirt. Um, I don't think it spell, spells the end of Test cricket. I think we saw this week that if you put two good teams against each other, if you play in conditions where the bat doesn't dominate the ball, because um, I think that's at the heart of the game, a fine balance between bat and ball. There's nothing worse than watching a game 900 plays 700. So if you play, put two good teams against each other, you play in conditions where the ball has got a chance and you charge prices that people can afford, People will come and watch the game. I think we saw that very clearly at Lords. There are problems in 2020, though, um, particularly for the smaller nations, for my term of smaller nations, like the West Indies and New Zealand, small populations not able to pay their players as well as, say, England or Australia. <coughs> Excuse me. Particularly the West Indies. 
whose calendar, test cricketing calendar, conflicts absolutely with the IPL. They are losing players to 2020. Players like Brett Lee are finishing their test careers a bit prematurely to go and play IPL. So it is a threat, um, and I think the administrators need to be careful with it. But I don't know, test cricket is, if you have a good test match, it's still unbeatable, in my view. I think we saw on Monday that people will come and watch if the, if the kind of conditions are created for a good test match. Gentlemen, we look at time. Two good questions. There are seven test matches every year for nine test match grounds. Um, so that's an issue. You've just seen Cardiff give away uh, their West Indies test match because they couldn't uh, afford it. Uh, I think the Rose Bowl are late on their fee payments for the Sri Lanka test match as well. So that, a lot of counties are very close to going bust. Yorkshire will be propped up by uh, a wealthy chairman. Other clubs have had tax bills paid by. Wealthy members of the committee, that kind of thing. So the county game is very fragile. I don't think the structure is particularly good. Um, I don't see a lot of county cricket these days because of the amount of international cricket there is, but I find it very difficult, if I was a supporter of Lancashire on a regular basis, to understand the structure of the fixture list. It seems to me that in order to build up some kind of loyalty, you have got to have some regularity about fixtures. And that used to be the case when I played. You'd have a championship game, you'd then have a Sunday league game. And people could kind of set their clock by the Sunday League fixture. And now it seems to be all over the place. So I think that's something that would need to be addressed pretty urgently. Just about that. How great a way you went on NASA to say enjoyed Sky Sports and became the primary target for the abuse? <laughs> <laughs> well, he actually joined Sky before I did. Um, I was working for Channel 4 up to 2005. He was already there. Uh, but I'm, I'm very happy that he's the butt of the both of you, and not me. <laughs> Someone else from this side, yes. Do you think the game in uh, England is becoming more and more exclusive? Uh, partly because of uh, the lack of terrestrial coverage. <coughs> I mean, You're asking the wrong man there. <laughs> Television issue, uh, you know, 
obviously there's not the numbers watch on Sky that watch on, on the BBC, uh, but equally Sky pay an incredible amount of money that no other broadcaster could afford. So the balance between visibility and, and cash is obviously one that the, the board has to make a decision on. And the investment um, of that money to the counties and to grassroots uh, you know, would not happen without, without Sky's money. So, so that's a balance to be struck. But um, yeah, cricket in state schools, it'd be nice if we played more, but it's the clubs that are the way forward. Uh, the sport being that important 
say that's because the rewards are ever greater. I don't know, but it's, um, it's certainly getting more serious. Sport is entertainment. I've always felt the entertainment should be kind of byproduct of the contest. And that's one of the problems I have with uh, 2020 sometimes. You know, there was a cricket executive here who put forward a paper about you know, an IPL equivalent in England and he called it cricket-tainment. When <laughs> 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 you hear that kind of guff, you know, it's just another start. So, um, the, the entertainment has to be a byproduct of, of the integrity of the sporting contest. And if there is an integrity to the sporting contest, it will be entertaining, but if you're just going out there, if if the IPL, for example, is seen as simply entertainment without an integrity of the sporting context, I think it's pretty shallow. Um, yeah. um, hello, Paul. Um, <laughs> uh, we were talking earlier about the um, exclusivity of the game. You were talking about um, 2020. You're saying you're not a massive fan as such. Sorry, it's words in your mouth. But um, 2020 is much more accessible for people in price-wise. And as you saw on Monday, there's you know hundreds of thousands of people want to go and see a test match if the if the costs are lower, perhaps. So what do you think about lowering the costs of um, tickets to test matches? I, I didn't say I wasn't a fan of 2020, yeah, but uh, I, I am a fan of 2020, and uh, I think it's great that the numbers come in. I just think it that needs to be kept in check compared to the other forms of the game. Ticket prices absolutely vital. We saw the other day a brilliant uh, pricing arrangement from the MCC: twenty quid uh, for adults, free from the sixteens, ten quid for over sixty-fives, and people flocked in. Um, I think grounds to be more imaginative about ticket prices. So, uh, for example, uh, in, a t in a match that's not selling particularly well. Uh, you could have you know, reduced prices for a final session when people can come in after work. The MCC World Committee has talked at length about trying to get day-night test cricket in places, not in England, I hasten to have, but in places where it would be pleasant to sit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, day-night cricket in England just seems ridiculous to me. Um, but we've all got floodlights, it seems lunacy. But Imagine you're in Bridgetown in Barbados, it would be wonderful. Have one session perhaps as darkness falls, six six to eight o'clock, and you price it accordingly and, and people might might come in, in greater numbers. Uh, a, a chap who corresponds with me at the Times regularly was talking about he used the uh, theory of the airline pricing models, the low cost airline pricing models where they um, encourage loyalty. So for example, if you've got if the Rose Bowl has got a test match against Bangladesh and a test match the following year against Australia, you know, those who buy tickets to see Bangladesh get preference for the Ashes test match. So there are more imaginative ways of pricing tickets, I'm sure.
physically did me look very much good, but it's a simple choice. Or it was a simple choice for me. It was either take it or don't play. Um, I obviously wish I hadn't had a, a, a back condition throughout my career, but I did. Um, there were times when it was, um, you know, not fun. Anybody in the room who has a bad back will know that it's one of those things that just makes you a bit depressed at times. You know, you, people can It's not like a broken leg where people can see uh, you've got an obvious injury, um, but it's just a bit wearing, and, and that's how it was. You get on with it. There was uh, no alternative. Or caustic, and I certainly don't 
intend to be. I'm not somebody who feels the need to get headlines for what he says. Um, but e equally, I think you have a, a, a need to have some integrity about it. You'll say, say what you think. You can't, you can't kind of shy away from it. Um, so, and it's important to retain empathy with the players and remember what it's like, how difficult. I think that's, that's the hardest thing, is you forget how difficult the game is. Particularly when you're distant from it, 10 years distant from it now in my case, and don't play at all, I mean, you know, once a year or something, charity game. You forget how difficult it is. The days in the 40 degree heat, how physically difficult they are, because you're in your nice air-conditioned commentary box. Um, you know, it's a difficult game. And I think sometimes it's easy to forget that. And you need to try and retain uh, some empathy. Yeah. Okay. I was just hoping uh, what advice you'd give to two players. So there's um, Dwayne Bravo from the West Indies, who's obviously modeled his game on Brian Lara. Please, uh, what advice would you give him? And um, Muhammad Amir, who'd be coming back from four years and missing all his years as a tearaway fast bowler. What advice would you give him as an older guy coming back? Well, I'd say Dwayne Bravo has picked a pretty good role model. He's modeling his game on Brian Lara. And he does look like Brian Lara, actually, incredibly, at the crease. He's got all the mannerisms, and he's a very, very good player. So um, hope, high hopes for him. Um, Mohamed Amir, you know, I wrote very sympathetically about uh, Mohamed Amir. I thought he was a victim uh, in the thing, in the whole thing last summer. Very, very sad day. It was probably one of the saddest days at a cricket ground that I can remember. Um, I have to say, he hasn't helped himself since. Um, you know, 
by playing the odd game that he shouldn't have done. Um, but he's a young kid and I think people deserve a second chance in life. I, I felt the captain should have got a much sterner sentence than the player, the young player. I think the captain is in a position of responsibility in a team. And I think the MCC World Cricket Committee the other day said that you know, the captain gets caught should be banned for life. And I, I think captains carry a heavy responsibility in addressing them. So I thought he should have been hit harder. But Mohammed Amir, well, I hope he comes back in four years' time. Um, picking up from where we left off then, the last question, what do you think of Steve Waugh's latest sort of the polygraph lie detection test? A bit gimmicky or do you think that will actually make a real contribution? Um, um, do you know, I'm not quite sure of the, uh, how accepted polygraph tests are. I just don't know enough about it is, is the answer. Obviously, um, he was quite brave and said he wanted to do it and passed it with flying colours. Um, I don't think it's something that will come in, um, despite his recommendations. Um, I might be wrong. Um, certainly, if it's a voluntary, if it's on a voluntary basis, if you've been up to no good, I can't see why you volunteered to take it. Gentlemen, I'm as an ordinary batsman, I think you are you you're one of those people who were like, um, you know. Frontline soldiers. When you got to go in, like especially late in the evening with fast bowlers that are fast and furious and very hostile. Which is your specific most intimidated experience facing a fast bowler? And embarrassing question. Is it true that you declared England and its close when hit with ninety eight not in the test? Yeah, I can't escape from that one. It's in the record books, which is a light too, that's there in black and white. Um, in terms of uh, fast bowling, actually some of the West Indian bowlers who played county cricket were uh, incredibly uh, frightening. Sylvester Clark, who played for many years for Surrey, um, was a chap called Tony Merrick. Um, there was a guy who played for Antigua called Hungry Walsh. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was a guy who played for St Kitts, the, the Leewards, called John the Dentist Maynard. <laughs> because he knocked Batsman's teeth out on a regular basis. So they're all the famous names that you know, like Batsman and Marshall, Walsh and Ambrose, but some of those uh, slightly lesser known West Indian bowlers were pretty fearsome as well. They had incredible strength and depth in those days. But I suppose the other issue was the, the sort of wicket you were playing at. I mean, if you got a pretty rugby strip, that must have been extremely scary. Well, there was one in Jamaica where the test match was abandoned. Yeah. But that was a, an exception rather than a test which is generally pretty decent. Um, right, gentlemen, middle back again. Yeah, uh, yeah hi, Mike. Um, you touched on earlier why you think this current England team are perhaps heading to number one. You mentioned uh, hard work, uh, relative decline of other teams, and central contracts. But you know, I, I grew up, my cricket consciousness was very much in the 90s, and I, I, don't doubt, I don't think that those players you had at your disposal were necessarily much less talented, if at all, than those 
now. Graham Hick, Kevin Peterson, is, the, is there really any difference? Uh, Anderson and Goff, for example. Why do you think English cricket in the 90s underachieved? Um, well, partly for the reasons that you mentioned at the start. I think some of the other teams were pretty good then. Australia were very strong, a great Australian team by any standards. West Indies still strong until the mid-90s. And Pakistan, a top-class outfit as well, all of whom had really match-winning bowls, so they're, they're, they're all good sides. I do think if the players that you mentioned had had the fortune to play on the central contracts, their own careers and, the, and the, the kind of life of the team would have been a better one. Because, as I said, if you're, if you're travelling around as an England team and you're constantly practising together, um, and I watch this team practice and they practice incredibly well, your standards are bound to lift, I think. Um, and I think that's a big advantage. Um, so, and I think that's a key advantage. Um, I mean, they've got some very good players right now. But how, how, whether you can compare eras and say they're better than less talented, more talented than a previous era, I don't know. But they're certainly a better team. And that, that kind of team comes from travelling around together, playing together, practising together all the time. Standards are, standards are high. Right, we're running out of time, so just three more questions, uh, one from each block, and then we'll have to conclude. So, uh, gentlemen, then. Hi, yeah. Um, my view of cricket commentary teams is pretty kind of like Billy Bowman's problem. With opening areas and things like that. But are there any, when you look down the list in the morning of the test match, are there any times when you ask things and you're going to end up with something you just Um, 
So it's really a test match of 50 over team, but I, I think that's fair enough. Split it and let people concentrate on their particular area of expertise. Your last question from this box, yes, the gentleman in the dark jacket. Yeah, I'm just curious to know, who is hard to play against, Merlifrin or Warren? Well, they were two great, great bowlers, probably the two greatest spinners you could probably argue ever, and certainly at the time I played. Um, morally, I thought I had a freakish genius, um, you know, in the way that he bowled like nobody else, um, incredible s s spin that he put on the ball. Um, Warren, I always thought, was the smartest bowler that I'd played against, that he had an unbelievable cricket brain and he could work you out better than any other bowler. Um, so kind of slightly different, I, I always say one, one, or only two, but I know lots of people disagree with me. Um, but I just thought Warren's kind of cricketing nous and intelligence put him a little bit ahead of Morley's freakish genius. <laughs> Uh, Mike will be doing a book signing and, and there are books to be bought uh, in the, the foyer out there after this session. So um, could you just remain in your seat for a minute to, to let him progress <laughs> And just force me now to say, uh, hey, thank you for, for being Mike Atherton, but also thank you for coming tonight. Uh, an hour and a half has zipped by. Thank you. Thank you.